Support for the Trailblazers.fm podcast comes from the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, a supportive and uplifting network of leaders and organizations across the country committed to building beloved communities for black men and boys and helping them achieve their fullest potential. I invite you to join this vibrant network of leaders and organizations that are working on the ground to drive positive outcomes for our black men and boys. To learn more or to join and help CBME change the narrative, hop on over right now to tvpod.com slash black male achievement. You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's up, Blazing Nation? Listen up, at the time this episode goes live, we're now into February, and that means that we're celebrating because February 1st marked two years since I launched Trailblazers podcast, and it's also the beginning of Black History Month. And so I'm celebrating today, I'm excited, and I'm really reflecting on having now been able to share over 100 stories of Black professionals who are today's Black history makers. And it's impactful. It's impactful for me because, you know, I'm seeing more and more direct messages and emails more frequently that are letting me know that a statement or a thought shared by a guest on this podcast happened to change someone's life or improve their future potential and outcome. And I'm reminded right now that if I didn't jump off my cliff of comfort and give in to the fears and doubts, right? I wouldn't have been able to give life to this podcast and it would have stolen from the tens of thousands of downloads that have happened, you know, that so many of you have been able to listen and derive motivational mission fuel that's now helping you to blaze your own trails each and every day, right? So I ask you, I ask you right now, what goals, what vision, what ideas are sitting off the edge of your comfort zone? How many people do you think are unable to progress in their own lives right now because you won't take a step forward in yours. So I challenge you right at the beginning of this conversation to take your first imperfect step forward. Many of you are standing on the edge of your comfort zone, but a real change, a real change requires us to jump off the edge. Remember, results are going to happen in action, not in planning. So please don't bet on later. When we bet on later, everyone loses. It's time for you to live your life with passionate intention. Listen up. I know, you know, (laughs) I said this in the last episode that we're wrapping up, right? With this financial series, but it's been so amazing. I know so many of you have reached out to me and said, you know, that the content in these episodes have had tremendous impact on your financial future, right? And I was actually able to convince two other amazing people to come on and share their stories. So I want you to stay tuned. We're going to continue the series. We're going to have an extension of this for today's episode 105 and next week's episode 106. And it's going to help us again to continue this quest towards building generational wealth and taking care of our legacy and our future, right? And so I'm so pleased to share with you that our guest for today 
is Dr. George C. Frazier. Dr. Frazier is the chairman and CEO of Frasionet. It's a company he founded some 30 years ago to lead a global networking movement for people of African descent. He spent 20 plus years in leadership positions with Procter & Gamble, United Way, and Ford Motor Company before starting his own business way back in 1987. So he is a seasoned entrepreneur and he's also an author. He's written six best-selling books. He's been named as one of the best speakers in America. And President Obama, President Barack Obama, recently awarded him the President's Lifetime Achievement Award. He's been married to his wife, Nora Jean, for 45 years. And today, Dr. Frazier and I, we shared in a great conversation about Black history and what's required for us as a community to begin to close the wealth gap. So let's dive in and get set to receive some motivational mission field from our featured trailblazer, Dr. George C. Frazier. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Frazier, welcome to the trailblazers.fm podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Stephen, for taking time out of your busy life to talk with me. And uh, it's an honor to be on this podcast with you. And I hope that I can serve your listeners. Absolutely. So we had the pleasure of meeting at CBMA's Rumble Young Man Rumble event back in November in Louisville, Kentucky. And I have to tell you, you did a great job in your keynote. You made some really thought-provoking statements about the wealth gap between the African-American community and other groups. And I thought it'd be great to have you on the show and have, have us have that discussion. I also found your own story so impactful. And so we'll talk a bit about that today in this conversation. But before we get into all that, I always love to begin these conversations off from a place of gratitude. And so I'd love to invite you to maybe share an unexpected blessing that you're most grateful for in your life right now. It's real simple. I am extraordinarily grateful for my 45-year marriage to Nora Jean Fraser. I'm extraordinarily grateful for my two beautiful sons who given us two beautiful granddaughters. And I'm very grateful for a very God-centered idea in my life right now, Wings Financial Education Center. So these are the things that I focus on at this stage in life. I'm 72 years old, and I look back on my life, and I see where I am, and I see where I'm going, and I see you know, my next sense of purpose. And I've essentially committed you know, the rest of my life to you know, closing the income and wealth gap between blacks and whites in America and understanding that the solution to that will be literacy. I mean, what's the first thing slaves did when they became free? They built small classrooms and they built small schools. And then within 100 years, they had an entire system of institutions of higher education. So literacy is the issue. That's fundamentally the solution. I am grateful that God has given me the idea to work on a system of education solving the illiteracy problem that exists in black America. So those are the things that I am. Every morning I wake up, I smile, and can't wait to get out of bed to go do my work. That's fantastic. So, you know, many see your success, the best-selling books, the amazing speaker that you are, and many don't realize that you were born in, in New York and had certain family struggles that you faced that led you to moving to Ohio. And your bio actually describes you as an orphan and foster child for 15 years. But could you briefly share that part of your backstory with our community? Because I think it gives depth to your path to success. Yeah, it was a very tough and let us say 
all intent and purposes, an egregious pass in a sense that everything happens for a reason and serves us in some special way, Stephen, and we will never understand that reason looking forward, and we will only understand it looking backwards. And as I look back on my early beginnings, it is essentially in later in life and the later passages of life have served me well. I'm from a family of 11 children, eight boys and three girls. My father came to America uh, in the early 1900s from Guyana, married a beautiful fair-skinned sister, Ida Mae Baldwin from Lumpkin, Georgia, and they had 11 children. They moved to Brooklyn, New York in Bed-Stuy. And when I turned three years old, I'm now the youngest of my family. I had a younger brother who was killed in a drug deal that went bad in Brooklyn. That's a whole other story, which now makes me the youngest. But when I turned three years old, Stephen, uh, my mother became mentally ill and was institutionalized for the balance of her life. And my father, when he came to America, could not, as a black man, could not get a good education and get a good job. So he was relegated to driving a New York City cab for 40 years of his life and had to work 12 to 15 hours a day and he could not take care of 11 children. So at three, I was orphaned, stayed in an orphanage from three to five with my older sister, Emma, and my younger brother, Joseph. And then we were sent to foster homes. So I spent 15 years in foster care. I essentially aged out of foster care. I went to high school in New York, but no one thought that either of us, all of us, all of the three of us were college material. So we went to vocational high schools. My sister got a high school diploma in beauty care, and I got a high school diploma in woodworking. Hmm. And my first job, when I graduated from high school, I spent three years on the midnight shift mopping floors at LaGuardia Airport and sort of paying my way and working my way through school. So the foster care was somewhat traumatic. You know, some of it was good. A lot of it was bad. There was everything that you could possibly imagine to include pedophilia, if I can be so bold as to say that. But it did not deter my sister or I from our anointed path. Emma ultimately ended up graduating with her PhD from Harvard. I ultimately ended up in the Minority Business Hall of Fame and Museum. And in 2016, President Obama presented me with uh, the Presidential Award for Lifetime Achievement. So it's not how you start, Stephen. It's how you finished. I understood some very, very important things early in life, which I observed through other people, uh, specifically my father, who was a very gregarious, very kind, very nice person, wonderful sense of humor. And in spite of the fact that he was a cab driver, our home on Putnam Avenue in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn was one of the most popular homes in the Bed-Stuy area. Dad had a wonderful way with people. People loved him. And I observed this, quietly observed this and understood very early in life, although I could not state it this way back in the day, but I can state it this way now, now looking back on this, that your emotional intelligence, your interpersonal skills will ultimately, as you, if you live long enough and you get smart enough, that your EQ will be more important than your IQ. I tell people this all the time, that 15% of your success in life, Stephen, will depend on your skills, but 85% of your success in life will depend on your emotional intelligence, your interpersonal and people skills. 
the ability to manage the five most important emotions we have and use the management of those emotions to cultivate, nurture, and to build relationships at work, at home, and in the community. I got that at a very early age. And so while I did not have amazing skills, I had amazing interpersonal and people skills, and I had a work ethic. And this is one of the things we learned in foster care because we had to do a lot of work before we were able to go out to play. We had to do it with excellence. We had to persist until it was finished. And that work ethic and that sense of perfection, if you will, the sense of excellence stayed with us throughout our entire life. Even when I mopped floors on the midnight ship at LaGuardia Airport, I was the best floor mopper at LaGuardia Airport. You can go to LaGuardia Airport today. There's a plaque on the wall in the maintenance department, and I'm on that plaque. And I took ownership and took responsibility for the floors that I was responsible for. And that attitude, it was an attitude, that's basically what it was, stayed with me throughout every single thing that I did in life. But most importantly, uh, developing the proper kind of emotional intelligence, the proper kind of interpersonal and people skills are the key, really, for me, it is certainly, and I think for many, the key to leadership and ultimately the key to success. That's a long answer to your uh, question, but that's the truth. Absolutely. We're going to come back to leadership and relationships here in a second, but at the time this interview goes live, we're actually now in Black History Month. And you shared a bit of this. You spent 30 plus years serving the African-American community. And we're at this interesting, to say the least, social and political time, climate. And so I'd love your input on what Black History Month means to you, especially as a black man in 2018. That's a great question. And I sort of have a love-hate relationship with Black History Month. Yes, it's a celebration. And it reminds us of our modern history, 400 years, which most of us as black people still don't have a clue as to what that really meant and why that was so critical to where we are today. And so Black History Month really should be Black History Year. We should be thinking about appreciating, understanding, and reading about certainly the modern history of our people. But it depresses me because at times, because it reminds me that even few of us know our ancient history. I took a group to Cairo, Egypt last year, taking another group again this year. And when you go to Cairo, Egypt, and you go into those pyramids and you understand and look at the hieroglyphics and the paintings on the wall and the people are black, blue black. You will understand that we were building pyramids and solving complex engineering problems when other cultures were living in huts, that we are an awesome and powerful people. And our history really does not start with our oppression, which began 400 years ago. But our history starts really 5,000 years before Christ. And once we understand that we are the children of the slaves that would not die, that we have the genetic encoding of the great kings and queens of Africa, and that's not hype, visit Egypt, go into the Cairo Museum, look around and see what you see. The statues that are thousands of years old absolutely have black features, big noses, thick lips. The skin of these people 
are black. So I think it's important that we have a more holistic understanding and appreciation of our real black history. I am not saying that the 400 years of oppressive history in this country is not important and has contributed to the greatness of our people. But our ancient history, I believe, once we fully remember this, once we fully internalize it, once we grasp the awesomeness and the creativity and the innovative power of black people, that we will take ourselves, we will take our families, we will take our careers and businesses to a whole nother level. That will take, I think, another three to five generations, another hundred years. Thank you for that. I know that you're doing your part through Frasionet, which for those who aren't familiar is a global leadership network that you now head that's committed to economic development through education, training, and empowerment for Black people. And again, you've been at this work for decades, right? But I'm curious to know what you shared that you're 72 years old now. What's driving you in the work that you're doing today? What's keeping you motivated to keep going? What keeps me motivated? Our young brothers and sisters like you mm. who want to know, who reach out to the elders, if you will, who do the reading, who do the writing, who do the speaking, who do the podcast, do the radio shows, who have an organic curiosity. And I every you know, I have eight and a half million frequent flyer miles. I've given over two thousand speeches and during my speaking career. I've written six best selling books. So I have met brothers and sisters like you. And I'm not saying that to blow smoke. I'm just saying this, this is real because this is what keeps me inspired and motivated, knowing that when I'm finished with my work, which is when I'm put in a casket and buried into the ground, that's when I will retire. I tell black folk all the time, you know, don't spend too much time sleeping because you'll be able to sleep when you're dead. Spend your time doing good work and solving the egregious problems, the thorny problems that exist in the context of our community. And as you mentioned earlier in your introduction, I know that one of the thorniest of those problems is financial illiteracy and the domino effects of financial illiteracy. And no one is going to fix that but us. Whenever I talk about financial illiteracy, I there are a couple of major quotes from major statistical studies that have been done over the years, but there are two or three that really frighten me and really create a sense of urgency, if not a sense of emergency, among Black people in America. One was a front-page article, if you don't mind, Stephen, I, I want to just repeat these quotes. It was a front-page article in USA Today. It was in 2015. Unfortunately, this article, Stephen, was below the fold. And it said that African-American baby boomers will be the first generation of Africans in America that will raise another generation of African-Americans that will not do better than them. So in the 400-year history of our people in this country, we are the only generation, baby boomers, to raise another generation that will be worse off. That is totally unacceptable. We cannot participate in that egregious prediction, that egregious statistic. So that's quote number one. Quote number two was from a major study out of Washington, D.C. in April of 2016 by the Institute of Policy Studies. And I quote, 
If nothing changes among African Americans, it will take them 228 years, if ever, to close the wealth gap between blacks and whites in America. But it will take Hispanics 89 years. This is the Institute of Policy Studies, April of 2016. 228 years, Mm -hmm. Stephen, is, is, well, that's almost the amount of time that it took us to get free. And that's unacceptable as well. And the study said 228 years, if ever. I didn't put that in there, if ever. So we have to man up and woman up, and we have to do something about that. And then the final quote, which is very disturbing, is it by, and this is again from Fortune magazine, September of last year. And I quote, by 2053, just 10 years after the country is projected to become majority non-white, Black median families will own zero wealth if current trends continue. 20 years later, Latino median families will follow suit and white median families will continue to own six figures. Well, again, that's totally unacceptable. The shot has been done across the bow. The red flares are being you know, shot off and the world is trying to tell us something and we need to listen or else we are not going to be of value to America. And then November of last year, right before the year ended, an article on the front page of the Boston Globe, November of 2017. And it was such an egregious article that even the Boston Globe had to qualify the headline. And I'm going to read you the headline for the article. That was no typo. The median net worth of black Bostonians really is $8. But the median wealth of white families in Boston is $247,000. Now, Boston is one of the richest cities in America, one of the most educated cities in America, one of the centers of education in America, the home of Harvard, MIT, Sarah Lawrence, Boston College, Boston University, and the median net worth of black families in Boston is $8, and it's not even 2053, according to the prediction of Fortune magazine, if that is not a warning sign, I don't know what is. So we have to fix this, my friend. And let me say this very boldly. I said it at the conference that you were at, that no one is going to fix us but us. White folks will not be fixing black people, right? Right. It's been 400 years, Stephen, and we're not fixed. Let me say that differently. White folks in general are not even thinking about us. Do you know who white folks are thinking about? They're thinking about white people. They're thinking about their children, their husbands, their wives, their neighborhoods, their schools, and their businesses. That's what they're thinking about. And that's who they should be thinking about because that's who black people ought to be thinking about. We ought to be thinking about our communities, our households, our income. How we spend our money, our businesses, we should be focusing on us first. I wrote this 25 years ago in a best-selling book called Success Runs in Our Race, The Complete Guide to Effective Networking in the African-American Community. And in the book, I begged Black people to think race and culture first, but not only. Let me repeat that. We must think race 
and culture first, but not only. So we have to put us first. And so this is what drives me. This is what I've committed, again, the balance of my life to now. It's not that I have not been talking about economic development and wealth creation for nearly 30 years. I wrote a book on this 20 years ago called Race for Success, the 10 Best Business Opportunities for Blacks in America. So my focus over my 40 years, actually, of serving black people, but 30 years as a business serving our people, my focus has been the importance and the power of building networks and understanding collaboration and understanding cooperation, but understanding that cooperation, one and one makes two, but collaboration, one and one makes 11. So I've been focusing on the power and importance of networking as my number one goal in the 17 power networking conferences that we've been giving across the country, right, annually. But the second thing that I've been focusing on, both in the written word and the spoken word, is economic development and wealth creation. Now, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article last year that basically said that financial illiteracy is an American problem. Now, we know that when white folks catch a cold, black people catch pneumonia. So if financial illiteracy, Stephen, is an American problem, it is 10 times the problem in the context of our community. That has to be addressed. And we need all hands on deck, every able-bodied mind, every leader to make sure that they are including that in whatever conversations they are having in Black America. There's some major, incredibly successful initiatives, but the problem is huge. There are 43 million Black people in this country. I would say about 10% of financially literate have the proper financial education. We understand the four pillars for the intergenerational transfer of wealth, right? So that means that about 4 million or 4.3 million of us are educated and literate about money and understand the business of America is business and that capitalism is the driving force. We live in a market-based economy, a democratic capitalist society, and the only color that really matters in this country is green. So until our pile of green is as big and as wide and as deep and as leveraged as any other cultural group's pile of green, Stephen, we will never be equal at the table of democratic capitalism. So you cannot live in a capitalistic society and be ignorant about money. So we must fix this. The great John O'Brien in Atlanta with Operation Hope has been working on this for 20 years. He's doing an outstanding job. The visionary pastor, Reverend Dr. Buster Soares out of Newark, New Jersey, has started a D, D as in David, free, debt-free initiative. But we need all hands on deck. And that is really, you know, where I am. And I want to join in on that fight. And I want to create financial education centers, a place all across this country, a place where we can coalesce, a place that we can come together and we can solve and discuss and educate around the psychology of money, the emotions of money, our relationship with money, why we think about the way we think about things as it relates to money. I think we need venues, venues, not just events, but venues all across this country, where we can gather on a regular basis to talk about building wealth in this country. And that's what I am committed to. And I will go down fighting around this initiative. 
I there is so much wisdom in all that you just shared, and I have to say thank you so much for just pouring in. I mean, you've referenced several studies and articles, many more than I, I was even aware of. But in what you've said, it seems that we are very ineffective at building and maintaining wealth within the Black community, and a big part of that is education, right? And so your thought is that to close... It's the root of that. It's the root of that. That's right. Huge, but the root, that's the root. So to be able to address that, we need better education to begin to to look at closing that gap. Absolutely. Education, education, education. And everything begins with education. And now this is, it's a deep problem. When we talk education, we're also not only talking about understanding the four pillars for the intergenerational transfer of wealth. That's education. We also have to change minds, change bad habits, right? And change the way we think about money and our relationship with money, right? And that is deeply psychological and deeply spiritual. So this is not just by, you know, something as simple as giving lessons. This is tantamount to treating an addiction. And the best system for treating an addiction in America is Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And it's a very simple system. And so the educational system, the curriculum, and the programming that we have designed to teach our people across this country about money, about wealth, about business, takes on the patina, P-A-T-I-N-A, of treating an addiction in the way Alcoholics Anonymous treats alcohol addiction or the way cocaine or heroin addiction is treated. And that is, we must gather our people on a regular basis in a specific place and ask, if not require, that they meet and discuss the deeper issues around their understanding and their emotions and their psychology of money, right? That's why we have to have a, a venue with Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous because I had to do an intervention of my very, very, very close friend who was an alcoholic. And when you do an intervention, Stephen, you have to go through the program yourself so that you understand how to, to serve the people or the person mm. that you intervene with. And so it is required that you, when you become a member of AA, that you make a mm. pledge, right? And the Alcoholics Anonymous pledge is one of the most popular, one of the most best known, and one of the most spiritual treatment pledges ever designed. So you have to make a pledge. You have to also set a goal, a simple little goal. And the goal is very simple. I will not have a drink today. Not I will not have a drink this week or this month or this year, but today. You treat it one day at a time, right? And then you have to pledge to come to a meeting at least two to three times per month where you sit in a circle, where you sit with other people that suffer the same problem. You talk about this problem. You speak transparently and earnestly and honestly about your issues. And then over time, you change your mind, you change your habits, and you become treated and you become 
sober, if you will. This is the same concept of WINGS, financial education centers. The acronym could easily mean wealth in the name of God and his son, or it could easily mean wealth in the name of good sense. But it is a sort of a rebranding of the old wealth ministries in the historically black church, right? There are about 85,000 black churches in America, about 15,000 of them have wealth ministries. The problem with most of those wealth ministries is the lay minister teaching in those ministries is not certified in financial education instruction. So fundamentally, we have the blind leading the blind. You cannot teach basic math or basic reading in grade school without certification. So this is an upgrading of the old school faith-based wealth ministry, where we hope to replace that wealth ministry with the Wings Financial Education Center, and then on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, whatever is good for your particular place of worship, you gather to discuss all things money. You go through a curriculum that deals with the deeper, more emotional, more habitual kinds of things that are going on as it relates to our misuse of money. Again, long answer to your question, but this is how we're going to have, it has to be very thought out. It has to be very intentional. It has to be very systematic and it has to be very systemic if it is to work over time. This is not a program. It is a process. I'm asked all the time, Dr. Fraser, how long do you think something like this will take to heal our people of its bad habits and its deep psychological trauma around money and understanding money and doing right by money and understanding the four pillars of the intergenerational trend? How long do you think, Dr. Fraser, that will take? I think it will take about 100 years. I think it will take three to five generations, Stephen. So I'm going to spend my life setting the pace, if you will, and then passing the baton on to young brothers and sisters who are listening to you and are like you, and they will take it the next, you know, the next leg of this intergenerational solution to one of the most egregious problems in our community. Dr. Frazier, I can't thank you enough, man. You've been pouring in so many nuggets of wisdom throughout this call. And I encourage you to share with us. You've written several amazing books, but I'd love to maybe have you share any books you've read recently and would care to recommend to our Blazing Nation to bring their own education on this topic up to par. I would recommend three books. I think these are three must-read books for every Black person in America. First, I know this sounds a little self-serving, but I have to say it because it's an important book. It's proven to be important. The book, Success Runs in Our Race, The Complete Guide to Effective Networking in the African-American Community. I wrote that book some 25 years ago. HarperCollins published it. Millions of copies have been sold. It is a modern-day classic. It is required reading in 57 historical black colleges. It is the book that started the networking conversation in Black America and ultimately started the networking movement. Okay, If you haven't read the book, please read that book because it puts the power and importance of networking collaboration and cooperation in historical context and gives you strategies and tactics for ways to move forward. So that's book one. Book two, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And I repeat the statistic that I stated earlier, that 15% of your success will be based on your skills, assuming you have good skills. 
but 85% of your success will be based on your emotional intelligence, your interpersonal and people skills, your ability to manage the five most important emotions within you and use the management of those emotions to build networks and to build relationships at work, at home, and in the community, the ability to work with and through other people, the ability to collaborate, the ability to cooperate. All of those are inherent in emotional intelligence. Pick up the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. It is a small book. There's a little quiz in the back of the book. You tear out a little sheet of paper. They send you to a website. You take an EQ exam before you read the book to rate your emotional intelligence. And then you take the same exam after you study the book. Very, very important book. The third and final book that I would recommend, I mean, if you would look at if you were in my, my library right now, I'm in my library. My library is in my office. I have a thousand books on my walls. This is just my library in my office. I have five times that library in my home. All right. So reading is important. The third and final book would be The Power of Habit. The Power of Habit. Because what I'm saying is very easy to say. It is extraordinarily difficult to do. It requires breaking some very egregious, very bad, very deep-seated habits that we have. And there's an architecture, there's a structure for a habit and then breaking that habit. And the best book that I've read on that, and there's a story about Dr. King, when he was conducting his march in Montgomery and his boycott in Montgomery, what he had to do was change the habits of black people in Montgomery to essentially make that boycott effective because they had a habit of taking cabs to the homes of the people where they cleaned the homes and they did the work, they were domestic workers, and they had habits of using public transportation. They either took cabs or they took the bus to their place of business. And that's what they did for years and years and years. And now Dr. King was telling them not to take the bus. And out of habit, they were doing it. So we had to break them of that habit. So the power of habit. It's all related to the habits. All three of those books that I recommend are related to the state of financial condition that we're in, the lack of financial literacy that we have, and the need to fix some of the structural things over time. Remember, this is a process. This is not a program. Just like education, you start in kindergarten and you finish in 12th grade and then you go on to college and then you may go on to a graduate degree. Then you may go on to a Ph.D. degree and education is lifelong and it's intergenerational. Let us pray. It's the same thing with this. Thank you very much for those three reads. Last question we have for you today. We ask all our trailblazers as we exit this call. What's one action, Dr. Frazier, that you think our community should take? this week that's going to help them to blaze their trail this you said this week right yes i want to say this and still be loved (laughs) turn off the damn television yes let me repeat that turn off the damn television please brothers and sisters one of the worst habits we have as a people black people in america was revealed in a study that the ac nielsen company did last year well actually it was two years ago 
A.C. Nielsen is the companies that does all of the ratings for television viewing. And they did a major study on television viewership by cultural group. And it turns out that black people watch 40% more television than any cultural group in the history of the world. We watch 72 hours of television per week. That's 10 hours of television a day. Any black person watching 10 hours of television a day first needs their behind kicked. Second, they have been turned into a consumption machine because when you're watching 10 hours of television a day, you are exposed to more than 600 commercials that turns your mind into mush and feeds the habit of consumption. So turn off the television, wean yourself from 10 hours of television a day. Even if it takes you two years and you wean yourself from 10 hours a day to eight hours a day over a three or four month period of time, and then to six hours a day over a three, four month period of time, and then to four hours a day, this would be good. You cannot amount to anything watching 10 hours of television a day. Take the hours that you're not watching television start your business, develop another stream of income, do God's work, serve our people. But please turn off the television or at least reduce the amount of television that you are watching. That's A. And then B, I want each of you to ask yourself a question when you leave this podcast today. It's a deep question. It may take you a couple of years to answer this question, but it's prefaced by the point that I made earlier that everything happens for a reason and serves us in some special way, and we will never understand that reason looking forward. We will only understand it looking backwards, that God has put each of us here with a unique purpose in mind. There's a job that he's assigned only you to do, and if you do not do it, it will not get done in the universe. And we're depending upon you to find out why your creator has put you here. So here is the question that I want you to ask yourself in the quiet of your own mind. What gift are you holding hostage from our community because of your personal fears? Let me repeat that. What gift are you holding hostage from our community because of your personal fears? What are you not doing because you are scared that you don't want to take any risks, that you want to live in the comfort of your couch watching 10 hours of television? What are you not doing? Why are you not where you are supposed to be? Dr. Frazier, I love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, tell us how we can stay connected to you. Tell us about your conference and how we can get connected. Very quickly, you can just visit my website, www.frasernet.com, www.frasernet.com. It tells you about the things that we're doing. We also put on an annual conference. We have been doing it for 17 years. Forbes magazine called the Power Networking Conference, one of the top five conferences not to be missed. 
in America, not one of the top five black conferences, but one of the top five conferences not to be missed. This year, it's July 5th through the 7th in Prince George's County in the greater Washington, D.C. area or Maryland at the Gaylord Hotel, July 5th through the 7th. If you want to know more about the conference, go to www powernetworkingconference.com. That's www.powernetworkingconference.com. And because you were smart enough to listen to this podcast and to follow Stephen, I want to make you a special offer. If you're interested, I'm going to make you an offer that you cannot refuse. I'm going to provide you a $2,100 full conference package, all of the whistles and bells for $299 because you were smart enough to be listening to this podcast. A full conference package for you and a young person, 17 to 25. You get a ticket to our Jumpstart Day, which is a day earlier. You get a ticket to our After Dark programs, which are education. And understand that the only thing we talk about at the Power Networking Conference is money and business and wellness. Money, business, and wellness. Because we understand that people will not change when they see the light. People will change when they feel the heat. You will never change that which you tolerate, and you will only change when you get angry. So when you come to the Power Networking Conference, we're going to make you angry, but we're then going to provide you the solutions. We're going to provide you the information. We're going to provide you the coaching, the mentoring, and the guidance to take your life, to take your family, to take your business, to take your career to a whole nother level. You don't hang around in Black America for 17 years with the conference if you're not doing something right. So I want to make you a special offer because you were smart enough to be listening to this podcast. I'm going to reduce this $2,100 package to $299 for you, an adult, and one college-age student, and all of the other whistles and bells. If you're interested in that, it's very simple. You must email me at gfraser, F-R-A-S as in Sam, E-R, at frasernet.com, gfraser at frasernet.com. Just simply say, I'm in. Make sure your cell phone number is on there. Make sure you reference this podcast. We will call you. You cannot get this on the site at all, so don't try to do it on the powernetworkingconference.com site. You can't do it. You have to do it with a personal email to me. So you have my email address. You have my name, Dr. George C. Fraser, CEO and founder of FraserNet Incorporated, where we connect, grow, and prosper. Dr. George Fraser, thank you so much for being our guest today, my brother. I appreciate you, Steve, and keep doing God's work. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved 
to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.